In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Even I find it hard to believe that it's 50 years ago that I first struggled not to trip over my cassock as I clambered up the steps into this pulpit. I've tried not to fall flat on my face ever since. I had planned to stay in Berkshire for three or four years before moving on to some other county town and education office, but each time I had a job application pending I'd start to think about my farewell sermon. This isn't it. <laughs> there was once an Archbishop of Canterbury, I can't remember which one, who is supposed to have asked a friend, have you ever heard me preach? She replied, I've never heard you do anything else. <laughs> I'm not sure whether I have avoided that trap, though I admit I do enjoy preaching. And I also tried to keep in mind a comment of a dear uncle of mine who said after the only one of my offerings he ever heard, that was an interesting lecture. Of course, it wasn't a sermon. Recently at evening prayer, a verse from Psalm 71 jumped out at me. It was this. Forsake me not, O God, when I'm old and grey-headed, till I make known your deeds to the next generation and your power to all who are to come. That's what a sermon should be about, sharing the thrill of the good news of Jesus Christ. People who've never sensed God speaking to them will find it hard to understand how anyone can claim to know a person who lived 20 centuries ago. Someone whose story is told in a little more than 100 pages, many of them saying much the same things, often in almost the same words. But what pages and what words they are. As we read them, we find much more than a collection of deeds and sayings. We're being taken into a meeting place. And what's even more extraordinary is that we soon realize that we're not so much there to meet anyone as to be met by him. May I suggest two reasons for this? First, have you ever noticed how much of the gospel narratives consists of encounters? Encounters between Jesus and other people or groups of people. As he meets and talks with a whole range of people, some hostile, some sympathetic, and many more who are perplexed or needy, we feel ourselves being drawn into their conversation. We share their hopes and fears, even sometimes possibly their indignation. Of course, the ones who appear most often are his closest friends and followers, the disciples. Almost everything we need to know about Jesus can be learned by returning to the accounts of the times they spend together. We'll come back to that in a moment. But there's surely something even more extraordinary going on here. I can hardly describe it, let alone explain it. Alongside the characters on the page, whose voices we hear and whom we can visualize in our mind's eye, there's also an invisible presence. Very occasionally, the gospel writers, in their attempt to convey this, do speak of a voice 
or of something seen. You are my son, the beloved with you or with him with whom I am well pleased. It's not even clear who hears the voice. And again, when a mysterious dove comes down upon Jesus, it's not made clear who sees it. This is the dimension which sets these writings apart from any others we may pick up and read. This is what explains why we may call them sacred scriptures. And it's that spirit whom we call holy who allows them to speak even to us centuries later. It's that spirit who enables us to share conversations between Jesus and his disciples and thus to become his disciples ourselves. Today's reading tells us of just one of those encounters which cumulatively turn this unlikely group of frightened men into those who will one day set the world on fire with a message of God's love. We've seen Jesus and his friends set out on an apparently routine crossing of the Sea of Galilee. Nothing strange about that, nor that Jesus is tired and falls asleep. Nothing to worry about. The group includes experienced sailors who've no doubt made the crossing countless times without mishap. Even when the wind gets up, there's no immediate cause for concern. They've seen it all before. Soon it develops into a full-scale gale. And their little boat is in serious danger of going under. Why should they imagine that the sleeping carpenter they've got on board will be able to do anything about that? Yet in a combination of terror and the trust they're beginning to have in him, they wake him. Master, master, we are perishing. Matthew in his version adds the words, save us. And Mark adds the reproach, teacher, don't you care that we're perishing? Whatever Jesus' friends hoped he might say or do, he takes command of the situation and with a voice of authority not to be denied, he stills the wind and the raging of the sea. He also stills the panic which has gripped them. So we may be surprised that he then rebukes them, where is your faith? Or as Mark has it, why are you afraid? Have you still no faith? He clearly thinks that they should know him well enough by now not to fear the worst when he's with them. We may again be surprised that as the storm dies down, the disciples are not reassured and comforted. We're told they are still afraid and amazed. But the fear they now feel is not for their lives, it's the awe of finding themselves in the presence of the holy. It's what we call the numinous, the holy other, that which we can't begin to understand, but which drives us to worship. On a rational level, they should have known the answer to their question, who is this? And he commands even the winds and the water, and they obey him. The Psalms offered them many examples of the stilling of waves. Here are just a few. You silence the roaring of the seas, the roaring of their waves. You rule the raging of the sea. When its waves rise, you still them. 
and especially when the waters saw you, O God, they were afraid, very deep trembled. So when the disciples say to one another, who is this that he commands even the winds and the water, and they obey him, there can be only one answer. The power of God himself is at work in their friend Jesus. But they'll need more time and exchanges with him for this fully to sink in. They still have to learn that the holy is also the friendly and not be feared. So, of course, must we. When we read such a story, it's too easy just to pass on to the next one, not allowing the encounter we've just witnessed between Jesus and his friends to lead us into our own encounter with God. In that case, we risk losing everything. The very purpose of Jesus coming among us is to create these encounters which offer us a peace and a hope and a life we shall find nowhere else. Jesus never stops asking, inviting us to meet him. And we must be equally eager to respond to this call to follow and to serve him with our whole lives. Lead us, Heavenly Father, lead us o'er the world's tempestuous sea. When has our plea ever been more urgent and heartfelt than it is now? Thank you very much.